The Story of an Hour, Kate Chopin, 1894. Knowing that Mrs. Marlowe was afflicted with a heart trouble, great care was taken to break the news to her as gently as possible that her husband had died. It was her sister Josephine who told her, in broken sentences, veiled hints that revealed in half-concealing. Her husband's friend Richards was there too, near her. It was he who had been in the newspaper office when intelligence of the railroad disaster was received, with Brentley Marlott's name leading the list of killed. He had only taken the time to assure himself of its truth by a second telegram and hastened to forestall any less careful, less tender friend in bearing the sad message. She didn't hear the story as many women would have heard the same with a paralyzed inability to accept its significance. She wept at once with sudden wild abandonment in her sister's arms. When the storm of grief had spent itself, she went away to her room alone. She would have no one follow her. There she stood facing the open window, a comfortable roomy chair. Into this she sank, pressed down by a physical exhaustion that haunted her body and seemed to reach into her soul. She could see in the open square before her house the tops of trees that were all a-quiver with the new spring life. The delicious breath of rain was in the air. In the street below, a peddler was crying his wares. The notes of a distant song which someone was singing reached her faintly, and countless sparrows were twittering in the eaves. There were patches of blue sky showing here and there through the clouds that met and piled one above the other in the west facing her window. So she sat there with her head thrown back upon the cushion of the chair, quite motionless, except when a sob came up to her throat and shook her, as a child who had cried itself to sleep and continues to sob in its dreams. She was young, with a fair, calm face whose lines bespoke repression and even a certain strength, but now there was a dull stare in her eyes, whose gaze was fixed away off yonder on one of those patches of blue sky. It was not a glance of reflection, but rather indicated a suspension of intelligent thought. There was something coming to her, and she was waiting for it, fearfully. What was it? She didn't know. It was too subtle and elusive to name, but she felt it creeping out of the sky, reaching towards her through the sounds, the scents, and the colors that filled the air. Now her bosom rose and fell tumultuously. She was beginning to recognize this thing that was approaching to possess her, and she was striving to beat it back with her will, as powerless as her two white slender hands would have been. When she abandoned herself, a little whispered word came From her slightly parted lips, she said it over and over under her breath. Free, free, free. The vacant stare and the look of terror that had followed it went from her eyes. They stayed keen and bright. Her pulses beat fast and the coursing blood warmed and relaxed every inch of her body. She didn't stop to ask if it were or were not a monstrous joy that held her. A clear and exalted perception enabled her to dismiss that suggestion as trivial. She knew that she would weep again, yes, when she saw the kind, tender hands folded in death, the face that had never looked save upon her with love, fixed and grey and dead. But she saw beyond that moment, a long procession of years to come that would belong to her, and her absolutely. She opened and spread her arms out to welcome them in.
There would be no one to live for during those coming years. She would live for herself. There would be no powerful will bending hers in that blind persistence with which men and women believe they have the right to impose a private will upon a fellow creature. A kind intention or cruel intention made the act seem no less a crime as she looked upon it in that brief brief moment of elimination. And yet she had loved him. Well, Well, sometimes, often she had not. What did it matter? What could love, that unsolved mystery, count for in the face of this possession of self-assertion which she had suddenly recognized as the strongest impulse of her body, free, body and soul free, she kept whispering. Josephine was kneeling before the closed door with her lips to the keyhole, imploring her for admission. Louise, open the door, I beg, open the door, you'll make yourself ill. What are you doing, Louise, for heaven's sakes, open the door. Go away, I'm not making myself ill. No, she was drinking in the very elixir of life through that open window. Her fancy was running riot along those days ahead of her, spring days and summer days and all sorts of days that would be her very own. She breathed a quick prayer that life might be long. It was only yesterday that she had thought with a shudder that life might be long. She arose at length and opened the door to her sister's importunities. There was a feverish triumph in her eyes and she carried herself unwittingly like a goddess of victory. She clasped her sister's waist and together they descended the stairs. Richard stood waiting for them at the bottom. Someone was opening the front door with a latch key. It was Brentley Mallard who entered, a little travel stain composedly, carrying his grip sack and umbrella. He had been far away from the scene of the accident. He, he didn't even know that there had been one. He stood amazed at Josephine's piercing cry at Richard's quick motion to screen him from the view of his wife. When the doctors came, they said she died of heart disease, of the joy that kills.